There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Guess who's at a noisy airport and forgot to record the opening for today's Nerdist podcast and he has to get on his plane in nine minutes. <laughs> no, it's me. It's Chris Hardwick. Chris Hardwick, I, I hosted Nerdist Podcast. I've done TV shows. Uh, no, I. you think I went to college with you, but I'm actually on television. Uh, never mind. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I'm sorry if it's noisy, but uh, I completely forgot this morning as I were racing from Memphis to Chicago to come perform at uh, the Zanies in uh, downtown Chicago on Friday and Saturday night. The uh, What are those dates? I believe they're the 13th and 14th. Yeah, Thursday, Friday, and then in Chicago, and then the 15th in Rosemont. So come to those shows. Uh, check out Zanies online at, uh, and get tickets. Huge thank yous to Samsung for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. The Galaxy Note 2, it's like it's not so small that it feels like a tiny phone, but it's not so big that it feels like a tablet, but it is a five and a half inch screen, which is perfect if you want. The video on the phone is amazing, um, and especially you'll get like a nice 16 by 9 ratio for widescreen movies. Uh, you can share stuff with the SB feature. You can tap the back, just tap the back of another phone like a wand, uh, and you can share large files in seconds. So, and then you have a, you have the S Pen, which basically makes the device like a, a virtual notepad. Uh, the, the Galaxy Note 2 is a, a super, super, super great device, uh, so please check it out. Uh, and thank you so much to Samsung for sponsoring this episode of the Nerds Podcast, which is Malcolm freaking McDowell. Uh, I had worked with Malcolm on Halloween 2, the reboot Halloween 2, uh, and he was amazing. Uh, he told so many great stories, and at the time I didn't have a podcast. Uh, but I was thinking, like, why isn't someone recording this stuff? So it was great to have him come on and actually tell some of those stories more in detail. But the guy has had such an amazing career. And as you hear, I'm so jealous of the time period where he uh, got to sort of grow up and develop and live, which was London in the 60s. And uh, just super, super amazing stories from Malcolm. And he was absolutely lovely. And, uh, and I hope you enjoy this. This is a... This is a uh, I, I try not to nerd out on him too much, but uh, but he was great about it. So here's the Nerds Podcast episode number 295 with Malcolm McDowell. Soren. Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome. We're already recording. Already? Yeah. Wow. Okay. It's that fast. There's no fucking around. It's just <laughs> we just we just get into this shit. Um, Malcolm McDowell is a, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I don't I don't know if you remember this, but uh, 
I was in Halloween 2. It's the part where Loomis is being interviewed on the talk show. I'm on one side of you and Weird Al is on the other side of you. Wasn't that fun? That was so amazing. <laughs> it was a hilarious scene. <laughs> I mean, it was cut down to the bare bones in the movie, but um, as I remember it, we had a lot of fun that day. It was great because uh, Rob, uh, Rob Zombie called me on like a Friday and he was like, I need another guest to, to humiliate Loomis. Yeah. Because he's really going through this shit where he's, he's just full of himself and we really need it. Like, who, <laughs> who can you think of and I go, you know, I just became friends with Weird Al. And Rob's like, you have to get him. Fucking get him here. I tell you, he was brilliant. Yes. Wasn't he? He was great. He was. He really was. <laughs> Mr. Weird. Mr. Weird. Yeah, hello, hello. What? Mr. Weird. <laughs> Strange name. Uh, yeah, that was great. I enjoyed that. So, hey, well, anyway, um, thank you. No, Bye. please, because the best part of that is, you know, so many people nerd out over Weird Al, but then watching Al flip out over you yeah. was such a fun... Yeah. <laughs> such a fun role reversal. It's a great little segment, that. And, and, you know, it's a very dark film. And who would have thought that Loomis would be the sort of light entertainment in the film? Yeah, he's, he's supposed to, you know, he's supposed to be this brooding, like, doom and gloom character. And then he gets a, he gets a little success. He gets a little full of himself. Uh, exactly. And the it, shit goes down. Is that, is that not the case? That was. Pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah, it was fun. It's, it's, you know, Rob's great. We always have a good time working with him. You know, he's very relaxed and uh, completely opposite. With what he looks like. <laughs> he looks a bit like Charles Manson, but... Um, <clears throat> There's a little bit of that. And yeah. people, people are always like, is Rob Zombie like the craziest person hanging? You're like, well, he's kind of a film nerd. Like, I don't... You know, it's totally. Yeah. And, and then you see him on stage doing his, you know, thing. He's, he's a brilliant performer. He really is. Yeah. But you'd never know. He keeps that very under wraps when he's directing a movie. And, you know, I'd done two movies with him before I went to see him on stage. Yeah. And I go, what the hell is my director <laughs> behaving like that for? <laughs> it's like the Alice, you know, like, you know, Rob was heavily inspired by the Alice Cooper stage show, which is like a big yeah. eye-popping freak show horror carnival kind yeah, of a thing. Yeah, well, Alice does that so brilliantly. and. You know, he's been doing it for a while now. <laughs> and he's another one who's just the sweetest, quietest guy. Very unassuming. Loves to play golf. Yeah, well, God, yeah. I did a movie with him a couple of years ago called... Um, um, what was it called? Suck. Suck, Suck a musical um, <laughs> vampire yep. musical. And, and he was in it. <clears throat> we were in the same hotel. And, of course, at breakfast, I was getting all these golf tips, you know. If you put your hand just a little bit over now, now, now. <laughs> Thank we'll you, Alice it. Cooper. Yeah. <clears throat> so Alice is a great guy, too. So It is interesting within that community where, I mean, there's not that much. I mean, I assume there's not that much difference between that and the acting community, whereas, I mean, they are essentially playing roles. It's just that people think that their roles are exactly who they are. Like, no, no, they're, ca they're characters on stage. They're bigger than life for, well, on Mick purpose. Jagger's totally different really? on stage. You yeah. would actually know that. Yes, well, I think most people would know it if they think about it because, you know, he's, uh, he's completely different. He's this extraordinary sort of <clears throat> energetic... I mean, he's just a force, isn't he? He's, uh, when he's on stage, he's certainly not like that offstage, rather unassuming. I mean, he's very bright, but 
it's not in your face, you know. It, it's um, so, of course, all those rock singers, you know, they're their their persona is always very different. I'm I'm always jealous. I'm always a little jealous of that I wasn't. I feel like the 60s. Well, <laughs> yeah, all is comics want to be rock singers. All comics want to be rock singers. But I mean, just like, but like, but being a performer in the 60s. You know, particularly London. I think London in the '60s would have been the best place oh. and time to yeah. have existed. I think you may be right. I mean, the music was so great for one thing, but um, it's really interesting. I, I am very envious of singers, especially good ones, because they take three and a half minutes to convey what it takes me two hours, you know, sure. in a movie or a stage play, to move people. They can do it in three minutes. And, and it sort of doesn't seem fair, you know. <laughs> but a really great singer, you know, it's the greatest gift of all, I think. Um, they're, they're just, a, the really great ones are amazing. But at least you're lucky that when you're on stage, uh, people aren't shouting out like, now do Soren from Star Trek Generations. You're like, oh, please stop requesting. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> you don't have to reenact stuff over and over and over and over again. No, that's true. But, you know, I mean, I, I know that singers, you know, they most of them get stuck in a sort of time. You know, it was their time. Yeah. And they had one or two albums or maybe three or four over a 10-year period. That's a good life for a singer, really, if you take that. But, you know, when you, you think of somebody like Mick, it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it's ridiculous. I was with him, I guess, in the late 70s. And he just said to me, well, I can't see myself doing this when I'm 50. And, he went, <laughs> and I went, no, oh God, no. Uh, and he's 70, for God's sake. 50th anniversary. They just had the, 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 the Stones band had its 50th anniversary. Who'd have thought they'd have still been alive? Well, it's just, it's sort of fun. It's sort of like the... That's uh, what blows me away because, uh, I mean, you know, Keith is still doing it. And I think we've... We've sort of come the whole circle with that band, you know, from, oh, not them again, and Jesus, another, <laughs> you know, tour, gee, and the drugs and the this and that. But, you know, you just realize after 50 years, there are, there are some good songs there. Absolutely. You know, they may not be all on one album, but there are some really fantastic stuff. And, you know, I, I'm sure you read Keith Richards' book. I mean, everybody should read it because it is... So his voice, and it's such a fantastic read. Well, I find it. I think it's it's the, one of the ignorant things when people are young and they go, "Oh yeah, you know, by the time I'm 35, I'm just gonna give it all up." And then when you're 35, you're like, "By the time I'm 50, I'm fucking had not do." And then you get, and you're like, "No, I'm still a person. I still want to do stuff. Just because I got a little older, why wouldn't I want to do stuff?" Well, it's all, almost like we used to say, you know, if I die at 30, I've had a good run. <laughs> you know, that's not a bad way to go. And, and I suppose that would have been true. And, you know, when the bright lights are cut out and are snuffed short, like James Dean, for instance, that, you know, he would be 70, what, 76 or 78 or something today. Oh, and Mallory Monroe and, and all this, you know, and, and, and yet they stopped in our imagination, seized them in their absolute prime, which is really when they died, sadly. 
So uh, it is a mythical kind of thing, isn't it? They're very mythical. It is. James Dean. Uh, I always thought James Dean was the greatest actor giving the greatest performances I ever saw on screen. Him and Brando, of course, you know, were our heroes. Yeah, particularly, you know, like coming out of the era of film that they were like everything that sort of came before them and to see the kinds of portrayals that they were giving characters. It's like, well, oh, this is this is gritty and true, real. Except, you know, you had you had the um, the exception. James Cagney was one. But, you know, I was working when I was watching these wonderful actors. I was working at the Royal Shakespeare Company and thinking, what a dreary, boring life I was leading, you know, and and in these, I mean, of course, Shakespeare's a brilliant writer, but, you know, how many more times do I have to see Twelfth Night? <laughs> um, you know, am I, and how many, how many different things can you do with the same set of plays? I know they do, and, and some of them are really wonderful, but you know, it just and then go to see um, Brando uh, on in on the waterfront, which is one of the great performances ever on film, ever, ever. And what's extraordinary is is that our academy, who you would think would be, um, you know, giving him whatever it takes, the equivalent of a a, a baronessy or a knighthood or whatever it is they give over here. You would think that, um, you know, Brando changed film acting, as you said. It, it went it, a millennium jump with him. It was just extraordinary what he brought. And then he had a lot of followers, and one of them, of course, was James Dean. And uh, all that sort of what they call the method and all that. But um, it was Brando who really was the game changer. And, you know, when he died, sadly, of course he was not anywhere near the same. So sure. he, he had sort of a great um, contempt, I think, for his profession. But, you know, maybe because there was some self-loathing or whatever it was, you know, in him. But, but even so, you know, when he died, they should have given him more than three minutes, which is what the Academy awarded him, you know. It was ten minutes for Johnny Carson and three for the, the greatest actor on film who ever lived, in my opinion. Well, I think people know. I mean, I, I, people definitely know, you know, like it, they, they understand what the he meant. The right ones do. <laughs> I always want, I mean, I can, I don't know this because this is not, this is not my life experience, but, you know, to, to get to a place where a guy like Brando got, um, do you go crazy because you're just weirdly isolated that no one can really under, you can't relate to people anymore? Is, is I'm that sure there's a lot of that in it, but you know, well, it's a great story. I'll tell you that was told to me by John Gilgood, who was in uh, <laughs> Caligula, Julius Caesar. Yes. And we did Caligula together. <laughs> John Gilgood. One of two films I did with him. And but... also Arthur, which, which he was uh, oh. stunning in that movie. Well, He was one of the greatest actors ever lived. Yeah. But, uh, and um, and yet, you know, he knew that when it came to film, uh, Marlon Brando could not be beaten. You know, <laughs> there was only one Marlon Brando. Anyway, Marlon, when they were shooting Julius Caesar, Marlon tapped on his dressing room door and came in to see John and said, um, I would like to do this speech, John, to you, and I'd like you to make some comments if you feel. Oh, wait, can you hang on one sec? Your microphone just went out. I think you're leaning on the, uh, oh, there we go. 
Sorry about that. Sorry, so, I'm leaning on the off button. <laughs> leaning on the button. So he tapped on the door. He tapped on the door, came in and said, John, would you, would you listen? Um, I, I'm going to do the Friends, Roman, and Countryman speech. You know, um, would you listen to it and let me know what you think? And John said, oh, of course, frightfully. I, I'd love to, any time. And, and Brando did it for John in his trailer. And, and, and John told me, he said, my mouth was agape. It was so extraordinary. And I just said to him, well, uh, really, please don't change a thing. It was absolutely amazing. And, and so a month goes by, and the producer of the film said, oh, uh, Mr. Gilgood, would you like to come and see the dailies? It's of uh, Brando. Or he went, oh, yes, I, I'd love to. I'd be very interested. And he goes to see it, and he went... He said he was so disappointed because after the performance he gave in the trailer, which was so heartfelt and extraordinary, he went back to doing the Brando thing that he knew uh, kind of worked. Yep. And he wouldn't take the risk on film. That's really interesting to hear mm-hmm. that there is that, that, that actors also have that same kind of thing that like a comic would have, for instance, where you really do... You want to take risks, but then you're like, but I still want people to like me, so I'm going to fall back on this thing that I know works. It's a, I always feel bad yeah. when I go down that road. Well, I think, listen, it, it's the sort of, I think it's the same for all of us, isn't it? You know, that a risk is a big thing, you know, to... I'm, I'm a bit the other way because I love taking risks. I'm yeah. making an absolute idiot of myself. <laughs> I've done it for pretty much all my career, you know. I want to hear about... So if you're in the Royal Shakespeare Company, you're like, oh, the film acting, that's where the risks are being taken. That's where all the stuff is happening. And then you get to do Clockwork Orange, which must have felt like, oh, yes, this is what I was talking about before. Was that the experience you had on that film? Uh, well, if you, I sort of boil it down to its very basics, I suppose so. But, of course, there was a long way between the Royal Shakespeare Company and, you know, Clockwork Orange. Is a, even though in terms of uh, time, it was only three years, but it was... A lifetime because first I had to be cast uh, in the lead in a movie and not only a movie but a really extraordinary movie and how many times does that happen in your career and then Kubrick had to see that movie and think oh my god this is the guy I want as Alex and um, I suppose the the odds about for that as I was resigning from the Royal Shakespeare Company, were probably a few million to one. Wow. But hey, you know, as luck would have it, <laughs> I met this extraordinary director and who cast me in this film, If, which is a very stunningly beautiful film that was a huge hit in England particularly, and Kubrick saw it and... Um, you know, he cast me, and that was it. He just gave me the book to read, read it, let me know what you think. And, and that was it. it was, that was, there was no talk about doing an audition or anything like that. It was, um, it was made in heaven, that relationship. So it was great. But I assume that with, with something like that, where it's, it's almost kind of experimental at that point, what he's doing, do you have to trust him completely? Um, actually, I, I'd like to say, and wow, you're absolutely right. Of course, I trusted him, but not in terms of the character because he wasn't interested. He was, he, you know, I'd say to him, got any ideas for this scene? And he'd look at me and go, that's why I hired you. <laughs> oh, shit. 
and you know he wasn't interested in that. He would get all the lights, the the you know the the beautiful art direction and all and the costumes. It was all extraordinary, and and the shots that he would fathom out and <clears throat> pick. But in terms of the characters, that was really his um, his weakest part of his of his armor. I say weakest part, but actually, if you cast it right, uh, then it can be your strongest part. And you know the way he cast Peter Sellers, for instance, in Lolita and um, Doctor Strangelove was sheer genius because. Sellers with Kubrick was sheer genius, and um, you know we will never forget some, the performances of Sellers in these different roles. You know, in Strangelove, you know the American president, and then Doctor Strangelove himself with the arm, <laughs> bread and, and you know they, you know they were goofing around on the you know that yeah. I mean, uh, I know that Sellers, you know when he was on the phone to Yuri, the president of the Soviet Union, as the bomber was flying with its nuclear load, literally 40 minutes time, there's going to be, Moscow is going to be annihilated. And he's going, Yuri, hi, hi, Yuri, uh, could, could, could you turn the music down, Yuri? <laughs> you know that's Peter Sellers. You know that he's got this whole thing going in his imagination where they're in the Kremlin all knees up, you know, they're doing the swilling the vodka, the girls are in and they're just the Politburo are just having a ball. I, that's such an that that's such an interesting thing to hear about Kubrick that it's his point of view was like here's where I'm the expert, you're the expert in that part, you do your part, I'll do my yeah. part. Don't ask me about what you're supposed to do. And then right. when you get a guy like Peter Sellers, that's a, you didn't you? I think you were. I think you told the story to Al that made his jaw drop. That was something about a dinner with that you were at with Peter Sellers oh, and Michael Caine, yeah. and yeah. it's like some fucking insane. Yes, yes, because we had the same agent, <sighs> this man Dennis Sellinger at ICM in London, and you know all the main actors, I guess, of that particular time were were with um, this agent Dennis, and he. It was the occasion of his sister's 70th birthday. <laughs> they took this private room in Julie's restaurant in Penzance Place. And so it was, I don't know, 20, a table for 20 people. And um, all the A-list clients were there. Kane, Roger Moore. Jesus. Uh, Peter, of course, and um, uh, uh, Sean Connery. Uh, they were all there. And um, so... They put me next to Peter Sellers because we were kind of friends and because we'd been in Kubrick movies. Sure. And also I knew that not to be offended because he wouldn't talk to me. He, Sellers was a complete uh, manic depressive. So for the first half of any meal that you had with him, he literally his head would be on the tablecloth. And he'd be so zoned out uh, as if he was on Thorzine or something. Wow. And he'd be completely out of it. And uh, anyway, so I was talking to the man on the other side of me, who was a producer or whatever, and we we're talking away. And suddenly, one of the ladies on the other side of the table jumped up because she'd lost a, a diamond stud out of her ear, an earring thing. And she jumped up, and, and, and suddenly it was just like a sort of an awakening or something from being there, you know. Sellers kind of perked up 
and leapt up and did 25 minutes stand up as Inspector Clouseau, <laughs> oh which was God. one of the greatest improvs <laughs> I ever saw in my life. And he was accusing everybody of stealing it. Oh and, my God. I mean, he just went round the table to every single person there. That's unfucking believable. And the reason he did it, though, was that at this dinner was this girl that I'd been working with. It uh, was the love interest. She was my love interest in this movie called um, uh, Something of the Damned, uh, Voyage of the Damned. And her name was Lynn Frederick. And I didn't realize it at that minute, but Peter was fancied her. Okay. So um, that was his kind of way, I guess, of showing off to her. Comedy peacocking. Oh, you got to say. So then we went back to um, she and I. I think she. I must have taken her as a date or something or sort of. I never dated her, but just a sort of friend, you know. Sellers invited me, because I think he knew that she <laughs> dr driven me or something, to go back to his apartment and where he was looking for a joint, you know. And it was like being in a in one of these Peter Sellers movies because he literally couldn't sit still and just talk. He would get up, go around, and then he'd start undoing boxes on top of the chest of drawers and everything was coming out. He's looking for a joint, for God's sake. You'd think you'd know where you'd keep your stuff, <laughs> wouldn't you, your little stash? But I think it was all for Lynn. And then he said to me, he goes, Malcolm... This is the truth. I can go into a room with 40 beautiful women. One of those women is poison for me. I will go straight up to her and ask her to marry me. <laughs> and that's what he did. <laughs> because it was uh, not a successful marriage. Even though she became his widow, actually. She uh, outlived him. But sadly, she died of alcohol poisoning. I can't believe it. She was young beautiful girl it's so i mean it's the sort of the the comic curse and it's worse for some than others but just it but the thing that's fascinating to me about peter sellers is the idea that he could be so zoned out and then not only come to life and start performing but be so calculated as to have a reason for doing it like there was it sounds like there was some sort of a weird anarchy control thing that isn't super common. You know, I never really thought about it before, about him. But it just occurred to me that that was the time when he met Lynn. And that that obviously is why he did this extraordinary performance. Because he was showing off. Uh, yeah. Thank God for it. Because, you know, it gave me anyway one of the most spectacular remembrances I ever had of him and London. I mean, that was so extraordinary. You know, I used to get the call from Dennis Selinger, the agent, and he'd go, Malcolm, he puffed this pipe. And I'd go, Malcolm, um, dinner tonight with Peter. And I'd think, oh, Christ. Uh, okay, where, where are we? Oh, lovely restaurant. We're going, you know, on the river. And, and off we'd go. And literally, for the first half of the meal, Peter, head down, Completely out of it. Um, but, you know, he was a very, very sweet man, really. He really was. He was just, you know, he just had this disorder, and that was it. And, um, you know, Spike Milligan, another great, wonderful comedian from that, sure. from The Goons, 
he was another one that had the same thing, you know, and uh, he he had the same kind of manic depressive thing. But he was another genius, I think. They were all very extraordinary, those guys, you know. I often wonder, would I want that level of comedic genius if it came with the dark stuff well, that, at, that accompanied Richard it? Well, Lewis, for God's sake. Yeah. Who's a friend and I love. and uh, But, I mean, he's hilarious, but <laughs> tortured, you know. I mean, it's like there, there's some guys where you go, oh, they're just, you know, they're just funny people. And then there are other people where you go... They, if they could not express this through comedy in some way, they would fucking die. Yeah. And they just, like, it almost, in a way, it's almost a little scary. It's shocking. Well, Richard told me this one story, which I think is very indicative of his whole thing, He's, is that, you know, he finally gets the call from Johnny Carson. And you know. Of course. That that was a career make or break. Mm -hmm. If you got yourself booked on the Johnny Carson show as a young comedian, it's like, I don't know, the equivalent of for an actor to be cast by Spielberg or something. Right. So he goes and he calls his mom and he goes, Mom, you know, I, I got booked by Johnny Carson. I'm on the Johnny Carson show. She, and there was a long pause and she said, well, who else is on? <laughs> 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 Just slowly hanging up the phone. Oh, yeah. Uh. Saying, what? No, I'm on. It's me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But who's the A guest? Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's nice to hear. Who else is on? <laughs> you, did you do the You must have done The Tonight Show. You know what? I didn't do it. Really? Because I was having a row with Kubrick at the time, and I pulled myself off it. Oh, a little bit of trivia there. Really? Was it? Did did you solve the row? You don't have to talk about it if no, you don't want to. No, we didn't. We never resolved it, and sadly, it's uh, one of those things that um, I never saw him for the last thirty years of yeah. his life. So, you know, I guess I regret that. It was a really dumb ass thing to be so prideful as not to pick up the phone and say, uh, "I'm coming up for lunch or to have a coffee or whatever." Yeah. But I didn't, and neither did he, and then it was too late. What was the, you, have you talked publicly about this before? Do people, is it something I don't that, think I really talked to, to I mean, I'm not going to get into the you details. You don't have to, sure. But it just, um, it was sort of really sad in a way that it just went down the way it did. Sure. And, and um, you know, I, I felt really pissed off with him for 30 years because I felt that he took advantage of a young actor refused to talk to his agents, took advantage, and then, you know, basically screwed me royally. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that may or may not be true. Um, I know what I heard, and I know now the family um, completely deny that this ever went down. But, but, but you know, they can deny all they want. Sure. But I know what the truth is because I was there. Yeah. You know? and it may not be in the file. You know, I'm sure it isn't in the file, you know, but but the thing is, anyway, it doesn't really matter, you know, that I, I couldn't have done the performance, you know, as Alex in Clockwork if I didn't love Stanley Kubrick. Sure. I mean, uh, it was a love fest when we were doing it, and um, I, was, uh, I was fascinated by him, and I wanted to please him, and I wanted to show him stuff that he'd never even thought, you know, and... So all this kind of stuff that came out in improvs, you know, were the same kind of thing that Peter Sellers, you know, before me, had, had uh, really started with Stanley because um, 
you know, a Strange Love was not a black comedy at all in its inception. It was a very serious look at nuclear, you know, annihilation. And uh, it was Peter Sellers who had that brilliant sort of black sense of humor, which Stanley also had, by the way, which is why Stanley went with it. Yeah. And you could see, I, I mean, the genius of Kubrick was, you know, going w with whatever worked at the time and not being bound by what it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. That's a tremendous risk for a director, by the way, and a hugely brave man that will, will sanction that. So, you know, most directors are, have their storyboards. They know exactly what they're doing. And, and the finished product is always a little dead and a little predictable. I'm not in all the cases. Sure. But, but uh, you often think, wow, that should have been a great movie, but it kind of just missed somehow. And I don't know why, because, and it's, it may be because the sense of risk and, um, you know, that sense of spontaneity when you haven't got a clue what you're doing. Is, uh, and if you can use that in the work, it's an incredible tool. Yeah. But it, uh, you know, it take, it's a lot of risk. Well, it is. And it, I think part of that element that you're talking about is just the organic thing that happens when something is of a moment that's not engineered. And so with film, it's always interesting to me because, you know, you, I mean, how many takes do you have to go through and how many times like, oh, now we have this shot and this angle. And you somehow have to figure out how do I get to this place every, you know, like 20 times in a day and that's, have it feel fresh. That's really not a problem. Really? No, no, that's, you're, you're, you know, you're taught to do that and you, you just do that. But the, what I'm saying to you is really that um, the real geniuses of the media, the, of film, like the Marlon Brando's, um, they don't know what they're going to do until it happens. I mean, uh, maybe they've thought about it. They've thought in, you know, in broad strokes. And, but, but they don't know. I, I believe they do not know quite what's going to happen when it happens. And that gives it a spontaneity that you can't really act. Well, I guess... Part of the challenge is probably getting what would be considered your left brain out of the way to just sort of let stuff happen. Right. And some of those people are just able to, there's no, there's just no barrier somehow. You just have to, somehow you have to, most people have to ignore their brain to get to that place. And other people are just, they're just sort of an open book. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I mean, uh, listen. You know, I, I admire Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, but, but I just, uh, I cannot um, admire the way he gets to his thing. I mean, you have to admire what he does because sure. he's a great actor and right. there's really no question about that. But um, it, it sort of goes against my grain um, where I'm coming from as an actor because my feeling is, well, for instance, just in, I'm sure that most of your audience know that he, he lives the park. Right. You, know, you have to call him Mr. President right. you know, for three months before. 
I mean, that to me is absolute nonsense. But, you know, listen, it doesn't matter. If it works for him, then who cares? I guess that's true, but I think it's... It is, it is, I, I'm probably getting this wrong, but isn't there a story between Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier where Laurence yeah. Olivier is like, just try, act. Try acting, yeah, yeah boy. <laughs> <laughs> try acting. But, but uh, to me, you see, it, it, acting is a, a wonderful... Um, tool to uh, be a magician it's sleight of hand you know it, it's it's that's the beauty of it that's the craft is that no i'm not going to put on a false nose yeah but i'm going to make you believe me anyway and that's what i think is so beautiful when you can't see the wheels going around you know you can't Olivier was a re very remarkable actor, and I worked with him. And but his film acting, in the main, is is pretty. You know, chewing the scenery, in the main. Mm -hmm. He's given, of course, some great performances, and and honestly, is the only actor I've ever worked with who made the hair on my back of my neck stand up. What were you What were you working on at the it time? It was a Pinter play called with Helen Mirren, oh Alan my Bates, God. myself, and his <laughs> lordship, and it was Jesus. called The Collection. Yeah, and I'm sure Helen remembers it well. But just to work with this extraordinary, you know, this is one of, you know, we were in a pub during lunch during the rehearsals. Alan Bates, myself, and Laurence Olivier, you know. <laughs> He was in a Macintosh, and we sort of went into the little private bar in the, in the little, they call it the snug. Okay. And we were just sitting there, you know, having a pork pie. We were going to go back to rehearse in the afternoon. And this Cockney comes in, and he goes, Go fucking hell, no! Go blimey, it's fucking hell, it's the old clockwork banana, isn't it? <laughs> I thought, Jesus Christ. He goes, come on, sign it. Sign this fucking... Hey, got a pen? No. Got a piece of paper? I said, what the fuck do you want? He goes, yeah, sign a beer mat. And then he goes, oh, wait, wait a minute. It's Tom Jones, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, made me laugh heartily, uh, as that was Albert Finney. But anyway, it's close enough. Um, so Alan sort of <clears throat> signed the beer mat, too. And then there was this lull. And I could see his lordship getting a little miffed. <laughs> that he didn't recognize. <laughs> no. So I said, um, well, surely you would, you, you want the autograph of the greatest living actor. He goes, oh, yeah, who's that? I said, well, this is Laurence Olivier. He, looked, he went, what? This old geezer? He goes, oh, fuck off, mate. Fuck off. And he walked out. <laughs> And I think Larry excused himself to go to the bathroom, and Alan grabbed hold of me and he goes, we're going to pay for that this afternoon. <laughs> and I went, yeah, maybe, but I don't have a scene with him. I said, you're the only one who does. So I'll see ya. <laughs> like that guy really, like yeah. that guy really knows the it greatest living. Oh, yeah. It completely destroyed Olivia's day. I'll tell you right now. It's so, very affected by it. It's so interesting. I mean, I, I think... It is insane. Some idiot. He didn't even... 
doesn't know whatever. You know. And you don't know what that guy's background is or if he's even crazy or if he, you know, you don't no. know anything about it. But, you know, as performers. But he was funny, though. That's funny. I mean, he came up with some funny lines. Listen, in the moment, that probably sucked for Lawrence Olivier. That's a fucking great story, though. It and, like, good. if he had just said, like, oh, of course, I'm so sorry, Mr. Olivier, then it's an okay story. But to fucking. No. <laughs> no. But I think as performers. The opening line was good. The old clock was. The old. <laughs> Clockwork I mean, uh, banana. He, uh, the guy had a great sense of humor, and then uh, I think he was—he <laughs> was just doing it to Alan with Tom Jones because he must have known that you know it wasn't him, but he'd done lots of wonderful performances. You know, Alan. I mean, he was one of our most brilliant actors. I just loved him dearly. He was fantastic, but he was very vain, and he touched on a nerve because, you know, he said to me. Um, on many occasions, he goes, well, you're not, I mean, I'm a cult star, darling, you know, I mean, I'm known for my cult stuff. I went, cult? You're completely bourgeois. You're middle class to a T. I went, cult? What cult are you talking about? He goes, well, no, all right, darling, well, I haven't made a clockwork orange, I know that, but I do have some great cult films. And I said, name one. And he goes, have you ever heard of um, God, what the hell was it called? Uh, the the uh, King of Hearts. And I went, King of Hearts? No, I, I don't think I've heard of that. And he goes, oh, my God! That is one of the cult films of all time. And actually, I did look it up, and he, he was too. <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't full of shit. No, no. <laughs> I like to think that the guy that came in, this crazy, like, cockney, drunk guy, turns around and then pulls a fake face off, and it's Peter Sellers. Like, that feels like a yeah. thing that I want to happen that would have been fun. But. That would have been amazing. Do you feel like do you, the, so? I feel like you have you have one of the most memorable scenes in the player, where oh, you can where great. you confront Tim where you confront Tim Robbins and you just fucking confront him head on. And I think what I think people who don't work in the entertainment business what they don't understand is that this business is so full of people who are afraid to confront or say things to people's faces or or just or, you know or they dance around or they you know oh yeah that's great and then the car like what a piece of shit noses. yes exactly full of them full of them um, and you know it, and what it said about you in that movie like how close to that guy or was that re was that was that something that you would do for real just call someone out well of course <laughs> i don't think it, why I don't do you think i came up with it i mean bob goes uh, i don't know bob i loved him bob altman now talk about a great american icon director i mean bob altman if you look back over some of the films that he's done i mean really you get a sense of the history of america mm -hmm. real sense of it i mean you know, Nashville is one of the absolute masterpieces made by any director of any nationality, I think. And I think Bob Altman is very underrated, and I think he's one of the truly, truly greats. Anyway, he came to me in the play and he said, I don't know, what do you want to say, kid? <laughs> I went, well, he goes, what's, I said, what's the setup? He goes, you know, you're playing yourself, but just, you know, you're not, don't let him get away with anything. I said, well, I did have this instance where I worked with this producer um, who went on, after I'd had this confrontation with him, he went on to head up three of the major studios, and of course, I never worked at any of them. And, and he goes, well, yeah, what do you say? And I said, if you want to... 
if you wanted, uh, what was it? I can't remember the line. It is somebody who was like, if you want to badmouth me, like, yeah, have the decency mouth, to do it to my yeah, face. He, he said, the actual thing was, the guy said, and I'm not going to give you the name because it's really immaterial, but he came up to me. He came, I heard that he'd been badmouthing me on an airplane, right? And I heard from one of the passengers in first class that mm-hmm. he'd been badmouthing me. And I was like, what? <laughs> so when I saw him at a screening, in Hollywood, and it was a really good film. It was uh, Terrence Malick's first movie. Mm -hmm. And suddenly there was this guy, you know, this producer, and he came up and said, Malcolm, how are you? And I just, as I shook his hand, I pulled him into me and I said, listen, if you want to badmouth me, you do it to my face, not behind my back. (laughs) Oh, shit. And I let go of his hand, turned away, looked back, and he disappeared. And then, of course, he went up to head up uh, Universal, Fox, and I think Paramount as well. Not all at the same time. Sure. In a space of 20 years. Wow. So that's probably why my career faltered somewhat. <laughs> do you feel like that? Do you feel like that? No. I mean, no. I went off to do something else. You sure. Know, but I certainly didn't work in the mainstream. And it was probably a really stupid thing to say, you know... Um, in retrospect, do I regret it? Well, hell no, because it gave me a really good line for the player. <laughs> well, not only that, but it's just, you know, you want to be able to talk to people like people. And if someone does something shitty, you want to be able to say, you did something shitty. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. And we never do that in this bit. In most of the business. It's we don't do it enough. We don't tell the truth. Because uh, it's self-serving. We want to be hired again. Yeah. And, you know, that's money, that's your mortgage, and that's your kid's education. So you can't be stupid. <laughs> but having said that, uh, you have to be true to who you are. I heard a story, and I don't, I don't have to I'm not going to say, I don't have to say who it is, but there was, uh, someone was being, you didn't, you weren't getting along with someone on it. I don't know if this is true, this is what I heard, that someone was kind of, you guys weren't connecting in, in, a, in some way. Yes. And you, you, you shouted something in front of everyone across the set where you're like, how are those hair plugs working out, love? Or something like that. <laughs> well, it does get slightly um, askew. <laughs> I think you're talking about entourage. Oh, I don't. I mean. There was a lot of uh, fun. But, you know, listen, I have to say entourage, which I think is one of the consistently funniest shows that was on TV. And, and I think that Doug Allen is a genius, actually. Uh, the way that he could consistently keep it really fresh and funny. And, you know, the, the boys were great. They're beautifully cast. And especially, of course, uh, my old nemesis, uh, Piven, who was, <laughs> who was absolutely brilliant. I did say to him, I think, in the... When I, after my first episode, I said, well, I hope you're going to get used to playing the heavies now because they're never going to let you play anything else. <laughs> he went, oh, yeah? All right. Uh, like uh, I didn't know what I was talking about, you know. <clears throat> of course, you know, he, it, that was a, it was a great part for him. And, you know, he, he seized the moment and he made it his own. He was brilliant. But um, listen, I love to tease him because you can't take anything too seriously i guess that's i I like that i I mean it's it's important because it's so easy particularly with what we do to take it really serious like this is really important are people talking about me just like with Lawrence olivier it's so i feel like 
people who are good performers are naturally sensitive because they can sort of yeah. be empathic to the world around them. But the downside to that is that we're also emotionally raw a lot of the time and can easily get put off. So it's yeah. it's so hard to remember. It's like it's not that fucking serious. It's acting. It's comedy. Whatever. Fucking Listen, relax. And honestly, in this town, I mean, you know. The way that they throw money at things that uh, are, for some extraordinary reason, hits. Yeah. And we'll take, you know, E's most successful show, uh, The Kardashians. <laughs> yes. And you go, they're making millions from this reality show, which is, well, I mean, I, I watched half of it, and it's sort of like, what? <laughs> I, I want to know, and I want to understand why. <laughs> It's like watching a train wreck, I think, and these ridiculous people, you know, and you go, I just absolutely don't get it. And, and but listen, listen, here we are. We live in a capitalist society. And sure. if you're pulling them in, then you deserve to get your just desserts. And that's the way it is. Yeah. Um, but but it does amaze me sometimes. I mean, I don't begrudge them at all, but um I'm absolutely uh, fascinated by it, really. Yeah. It's the power of celebrity is so staggering without any real sort of talent. Well, there is talent there, obviously, in the Kardashians because they've turned this thing into, you know, a half a billion dollar empire with perfumes, clothes. Sure, sure. There's talent like a parasite whatever. would have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And only in America. Well, and, and you you have the beauty of having, you know, this uh, decades worth of this hindsight and, and really understanding how things work. And see, do you feel like yeah. you see the same patterns repeat year after year, no matter how much better we think we are than the old days or whatever? Like when you look back, we're all the fucking same. Like there's oh, no. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, you absolutely say that, Regan, because of course, if it, not this, I mean, there's always an equivalent. You know, every five or ten years, uh, it, it's a, a pretty much a cycle. But, um, you know, listen, I can only um, look after my own shit. You yeah. Know? And, um, you know, I've been working for many, many decades. And, and uh, you know, I, I honestly think that now that I am, um, you know, 69... I'm actually being offered more stuff now than I was when I'd done Clockwork Orange. Which oh, is, wow. Which is amazing. It may not be the same kind of quality. I may not be the same kind of prices. But even so, um, you know, I remember John Gielgud coming to me when I was starring in Caligula and him coming into my room and saying, Oh, um, they're not paying me very much per diem. Um, heard you had a villa any chance and i went john i would love you to come and stay with me i had him for two weeks as my house guest. oh my god and him singing noel coward songs you know i mean i'm playing the piano and at night and the stories and him putting his foot every which way you know he, i said to him is it true john just tell me one thing is this this story true about you when you were in New York being fated for Hamlet, and everybody was oh, brown-nosing you, loving you, adoring you, dinners and this, on honor of John Gielgud and this and that, the greatest Hamlet of his generation, the greatest this. And you're at some dinner party and next to the hostess, and she turns to you and says, so John, 
So what are you doing tomorrow night? And he goes, oh, I don't know. I think I've got to go to some boring dinner with somebody called Mercedes McCambridge. And there was this pause and she went, John, I am Mercedes McCambridge. And he goes, oh, not you, darling, the other one. Was it true? Yeah, he said, oh, I don't remember. But I do remember Mercedes McCambridge, I think. And yes, I think I did go to a dinner, but I can't remember saying it. <laughs> what did he think? Did, did, he, did he understand what Caligula was when he got into it? Or did he understand what the finished product was going to be by the end? Listen, he's gay, you know. He, he could care less. He was so thrilled to see little boys naked. I didn't know that. Oh. I mean, I knew he was gay, but I didn't know. I, I thought he was. I thought he was horrified by the end of it. Like horrified. I had no idea that he we were... loved it. I saw him down a long hallway, and I, I'm walking to the set. All these nakedness going on. I know. I haven't been up yet to the set, but I'm walking up there, and I've got a long train, and all the wardrobe people sure. are holding up my thing, and I'm walk. And John comes running up. He goes, "Malcolm, have you been to the set?" I said, John, I'm just about to go to the set. He goes, I've never seen so much cock in all my life. <laughs> he was so happy. <laughs> he goes, oh, do tell me whether you think they're shaved or pubescent. Oh I said, I'll, I'll do a quick inspection for you, John. <laughs> Amazing. I did not. And then I saw him on Third Avenue. He was shooting Arthur. I just happened to bump into him on Third Avenue. He goes, seen the film twice. <laughs> wow. He goes, and I paid once. <laughs> it's awfully good. It's awfully good. <laughs> and then somebody had got to him who said, John, for God's sake, this is a piece of crap. You shouldn't be saying things like this. You're a knight of the realm. And he, so the next thing is, I hear Frightfully awful film. I mean, really terrible. I, I only paid to see it once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's one movie that, uh, I mean, the, the, your, your IMDb page is this big. Uh, there's, there, is, there is one particular movie that I love to watch every couple of years, which is time after time. It's like for a time travel movie, which is where the element, the time travel element is really just sort of a, a device, but it's such a compelling it's one of my favorite, favorite, favorite movies. I love that film, too. I, I do. And, um, you know, it, it's a beautiful story. Gorgeous story. And a fantastically cast. And David Nick Warner. Meyer, who wrote the screenplay, was extremely talented and directed. And um, I kept saying to him, who's playing the girl? You know, who's the girl? And he kept saying, we're trying to get this girl, you know, She's working with Jack Nicholson, and, and he goes, and you're going to love this girl. Well, we got her, Mary Steenburgen. Little did I know that that's literally what happened. I did love her. You know, we, we, we fell in love during the movie, which is a real no-no, but that's just the way it is sometimes. Well, you were together for a long time. Well, yes, in terms of Hollywood. <laughs> I think eight years. That's yeah. It's a, a lifetime, isn't it? But... Um, Two wonderful children from it, Lily and Charlie. So uh, it, that's why it's one of my favorite movies. Oh, that's and nice. also a, a superb performance from David Warner. As wonderful Jeffrey. actor. He's a great actor. And he was a, a friend of mine going back to 1964. Oh, wow. At Stratford when he was playing Hamlet. And, he, you know, it was like when David played Hamlet, he, I think he was 21. And it was like you came out of the stage door. It was like the Beatles who had been performing. I mean, these young university kids were like, there'd be three, 
400 people waiting for this great big long cold glass of water kind of a guy with a sort of blonde mop <laughs> and it was David and, and I'd be right behind him you know because I was friends with him and uh, you know I was playing small parts and uh, this is before anything happened for me but um, he didn't get on with many people and I just so happened he and I bonded and I'd uh, walk out of the stage door with him and I'd go, uh, anybody you fancy? Uh, and he'd go, the one in red. <clears throat> I'd go, uh, darling, you? Yes, what's your name? <laughs> Jillian. Oh, yes. Well, Mr. Warner would like to have a drink with you, Jillian. And who's your friend? <laughs> <laughs> He'd like your friend to have a drink with me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the way we went through uh, uh, fun times at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Well, that's... Debauchery. Debauchery that... and alcoholism. Well, I don't think there's... I mean, if you were going to exist in that time... That would be the way that you would want to do it, exactly. And that's what I'm—that's what I'm jealous of <laughs> of that period of time. Oh yeah, but uh, the sixties in in London, uh, particularly in London, were fantastic, especially with the music and you know the advent of the Beatles, that that kind of were these trailblazers, you know. And then, but you know, in Liverpool, which is where I'm from, incidentally, you know, there were three thousand groups. So I thought everywhere was like this. Oh yeah. I couldn't believe that uh, I went to other cities and I, came, I went into the pubs expecting a band. I went, where's the band? They go, what band? And, you know, it was just Liverpool. There's this great sort of... Did you ever hang out with those guys? No, but I did see them when they were the Silver Beetles mm -hmm. in the cabin. Wow. Um, this is before they got tarted up, before they met Brian Epstein. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were in the leathers and all that. And they were, <laughs> but it, you know, it was John Lennon's band, you know, and and uh, you know, John's voice was amazing. And they were singing well, covers, Chuck Berry and all that, and Little Richard, uh, all the great, great rock and roll numbers, you know, and um, uh, particularly John is seared into my memory as this extraordinary sort of talent that you couldn't take your eyes off. When he was on stage with the others, and the others were wonderful, you know, George was a wonderful guitarist and all that, but you just didn't take your eyes off John. What do you think that is? Like some people Charisma. have... It is, it's, it's just a, It's like an inexplainable... Like you can't engineer it. No, and, and Paul had it to a certain extent. I think he grew into his more, but this is very, very early days. Sure. And... Um, you know, I think when they started writing and Paul came in with some classic tunes and really beautiful songs that he really got his confidence, you know, uh, because it was really John's group. That was it. It was, uh, but, but, I mean, it changed the whole, it was a seismic shift for us who lived in the provinces. It said to us, yes, we can make it too. Mm-hmm. You know, so everything was sort of happening. It was a post-war Britain. This is, you know, a country that had fought with the Americans and beaten the Nazis. And, but the thing was, the British had fought themselves to an absolute exhausted standstill and were bankrupt and all the rest of it. And um, so 
in a weird way, the malaise after the war, the, the sort of middle class thinking that it was all going to be the same. And then through the voice of theater and film and music, it was the young people saying, it is not the fucking same. We're going to take it now. And it was an amazing period, actually. Theater, Look Back in Anger, was the first really extraordinary play to kind of uh, rail against the middle class. I mean, it was fantastic. It was uh, an incredible piece of work that most of the critics were horrified, gave it absolutely terrible reviews. <laughs> but, but to be fair to them, the main one, a man called Harold Hobson for The Times went back, re-reviewed it a week later, and changed his mind. When does that happen? Not very often. Not that, very often. That's amazing. Yeah. That was the start of it all, really. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, thank God for, um, you know, black music from America. because, But the Brits kind of took that and popularized it. They, you know, uh, Rick Mail and all that. Sure. Without these guys, you know... Uh, Jimi Hendrix wouldn't have been Jimi Hendrix and, you know, because he was a huge star in England and he wasn't known in America. Incredible guitarist. Incredible. Well, uh, I'm super excited and jealous and thrilled that you were able to come on the pod. And I'm, just, I'm happy that after all this time that you still, you seem totally happy and you seem totally like, I'm glad that you're working all the time and that, you know, that you came out. I don't know that you just, most people don't survive that kind of a, of a thing, particularly to go through. Cause I always think the sixties would be great. The seventies would have killed me. The eighties would have made sure I was in the ground. The eighties were the worst sort of time for me. I, I did not enjoy the eighties because it was all every man for himself. You know, it was the, the sort of selfish generation i i suppose whatever i don't know i mean <clears throat> thank god i didn't live in england under margaret thatcher although i did immensely admire her you know in many ways and <clears throat> you know she bit the bullet which is what's gonna have to happen here sure the bullet has got to be taken and it's got to be bit into if there is such a word well <laughs> i think bit into works Good. But I want to talk. I just really let the last thing is uh, is just let you talk about the movie, the the Silent Night movie. Oh yes, is that um, why we're here? Well, I don't think. I mean, that's just an extra thing. I mean, we were here because yeah. <clears throat> I wanted to uh, kind of fanboy all over you for an hour, and then then yeah. you're in this movie. Which, by the way, uh, Donald Logue is in the movie, and I fucking love Donald Logue. Oh yeah, he's, a, yeah he's an incredible actor. Very wonderful. Well, they're all very good, and um, you know, it, it's it's. A little modest film in, in terms of Hollywood, but which doesn't mean to say that it's modest in, its, um, in what it's doing. It isn't. It's, it's, uh, you know, it looks great, and it's, uh, there was a, a movie in the uh, 80s, I believe, uh, that, the, that was the original. Silent, Silent Night, Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, that's right. And, and I didn't see it, but I heard it was pretty deadly. <laughs> um, so, you know, we've taken this idea and, and tried to, to really run with it and make it fun. It is a comedy. I mean, it's a sort of horror comedy, if you like. 
uh, which doesn't mean to say, you know, you can, as the performer, it doesn't really make any difference. You have to still play the truth of it because otherwise, you know, you can't be laughing with sure. the audience. I mean, but, but so it, it's, it is a, it was a lot of fun to do. And I often thought to myself, what the hell is an English cop doing in Maine? <laughs> You know, but but nobody seemed to care. And I figured, well, that's what I used to say about, um, what's his name? Oh, God, the little English actor. Um, Dudley Moore. Oh, yeah. I can, Dudley was an English guy. He goes, I don't know, but they didn't want me to do anything different. So I just did it. <laughs> I went, you know, nobody questions it. No. I mean, if it's funny, they don't give a shit. No, they don't give a shit. That's so true. <laughs> anyway, this is not an out-and-out comedy, but it's a, it's to scare you and make you laugh. You know, it, it's a scary scream. Yeah. Uh, and fun and uh, fun part to do. And, you know, we all had fun doing it. And... Um, Hopefully they'll do okay with it, and, and we'll do another one. You know, who knows? Um, I just enjoyed it because I'm not playing the heavy. <laughs> I, I didn't have to go around dressed as Santa, killing everyone. Right. I don't know how many. I mean, it, it, it's hilarious to see the you know parade of Santas. It was like, uh, you know, in the old days, you'd taken a tab of LSD or something. And you'd been transported to Winnipeg in Canada. I mean, go figure. And there's all these, this the 50 Santas. And they're all looking the same, you know. And it's hilarious, actually. It's sort of scary and funny. We and, uh, of course, they always get the wrong one. You know? Sure. And he's practically slaughtered half the town before they figure <laughs> it out. Is this how you pick, when you pick a movie, do you go, I just... This looks fun. I just I, this is this is what I want to do and have fun. Yeah, you go. Where is it? <laughs> oh, I've just been there. Oh, I enjoyed. There's some good restaurant. And how much? Oh, okay. Well, I think we can make that work. And who's in it? And the director is. Oh, okay, good. And then that's it. That's it. Then you meet with them. I met with the director, who's a very talented Stephen. He was really fantastic. And uh, so that's it. Uh, it's as simple as that. You just do it. You know, better not. When I was a young actor, I used to think, I'm going to wait for the script. Right. Because I can't afford to put my talent out there and dilute it. <laughs> now, this is really what I thought. <laughs> I was such an arrogant idiot. <laughs> and, you know, so I'd go two years without making a movie. And then I'd make one, and it would be terrible anyway. <laughs> so I thought to myself, what the fuck am I waiting for? This is insane. And I used to think, how could, how could um, Michael Caine do that? You know, he doesn't even remember how many movies he's made. But Michael, you know, he's just a working actor. Yeah. And that you have to admire. Well, and the Take other, my hat off. The other great thing is that, you know, because of the way it works... It doesn't matter if you do 10 movies that aren't amazing. You can still do one that's amazing, and then people yeah. will, like, it's just like when Michael Caine was, you know, in his in the speech at the Academy, and he was like, I've, I'm most of you familiar with that career. You know, I've done a lot of crap. But if they don't care. Like, they no, just, he's no. still good, and he's still in the right. He gives his all. Yeah. Like I do. You know, it doesn't matter. You go into it, and you have fun, and you energize it, and you just uh, do the best you can with what you're given. And, um, you know, I don't even want to change a line sometimes because, you know, I'm not here to rewrite the script. I just, 
All right, give me what's there. Let's make this piece of crap work. <laughs> that to me is interesting. You know, um, we could get in Harold Pinter to do a rewrite. Uh, it's difficult now, but um, and the thing is, you won't be able to change a but to an and. You know, but the thing is, it's it's. I, I suddenly, you know, came to this awakening, I don't know, 40 years ago, whatever, 30 odd years ago, that <clears throat> the fun for it, for me, is that making unsayable dialogue sound important. I mean, if you actually break it down, it's like, that didn't make any sense. And I went, I know, but you think you understood me, right? And they go, yeah, yeah, I think I did. And I went, no, but it doesn't make any sense. That's an incredible craft. I never it thought is. of that before. That's so much, like, it's easy if, you know, I'm not saying it's super easy, but, you know, Spielberg's handing you a thing. and like, here's this gift. All you have to do is just not get in the way, you know? And then, Absolutely. but to actually be able to, to, to take something and have to shift it. Oh, yeah. That's, that's it. There should be a, there should be a fucking award show for that. You know what? Uh, nobody would ever know because it's so hidden that you never know because you, you see when they go on about some performance or other that's only the the tip of the iceberg the piece that you see but all the work has been done underneath it you know the direction and the, the uh, extraordinary writing whatever it is so that makes it sort of actor proof mm -hmm. you know and there are actor proof parts Believe you me, and a lot of them have received Academy Awards. Sure. But that's okay, too, because, listen, um, you know, we all need something to do in January, and, and um, you know, we can have a good laugh. I mean, it is, it is fun. I mean, we, I, I never miss it. I always love watching the Academy Awards because I love to hear the speeches, and I cannot believe, you know, when they'll get someone who's like you know, done 40 years experience and they're about to talk seriously and the music starts immediately <laughs> and you go, why bother even having an awards then? You know. <laughs> why bother? What the hell are we doing here? Why don't we have another 10 minutes on the, you know, the documentary or the foreign documentary? Uh, I know. Here's a statue. No one gives a fuck what you have to say. Just take it and walk off. Yeah, but that guy's really interesting. I don't give a shit. Here's uh, Everyone wants to know how those dresses were made. No, they don't. Anyway, uh, Malcolm, thank you so much for coming on, man. It was really, really fun talking to you. You too. All right. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Yeah. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.